Today we are going to continue on in the power of influence. Last week, you know, we really focused on the fact that when we think about the power of influence, all these things, they start to flood our mind and, and different things come to different minds, you know, whether it's the, uh, you know, education system, whether it's the media, we got TV, radio, uh, internet, you know, all of these things, the government, all of these things are extremely influential. They shape society. They shape ideologies. They give us our values, if you will. They have a massive impact But the one thing, as I mentioned last week, that typically doesn't come to the surface, it doesn't come to our mind, is us. We have a profound ability to influence others. And you know, it's not really a question of whether we will, because whether you believe it or not, you are influencing others. You have, you are, and you will in the future. So the real question is, is what does it look like? Is your influence righteousness? Is it good? Is it holy? Because I'm going to tell you, if if it is, you are going to inspire others to walk and to proclaim the name of Yeshua, to walk with him, to obey his commandments, to show love to your neighbor. I mean, when you're just doing this, you may not even be talking to somebody, but you're just living the life of holiness. It's going to strengthen them to do the same. And it may be something that you say just in passing. You think it's not a big deal. You have no idea what it did to their heart and how it strengthened it. Because when you speak life, it gives life. This is the reality, amen? You jump the tracks on this though, and you start to speak death. You start to sow discouragement in others. You start to just act inappropriately with the lifestyle that doesn't line up with this word. I promise you it will inspire others to do the same. They will be emboldened to walk away from the Lord. You will have given them the strength to walk in ungodliness just by your actions. You may think, well, I never intended for him to look at me. Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, this this type of attitude will... Regardless, you're going to make an impact. You're going to hit a target. Well, this week, we're going to continue to look at this power of influence. And we're going to do this. This is not what I wanted to do. It just happened this way. We're going to do this by looking at a story. It's the story of Job. And for those of you who are familiar with Job, or maybe, let's just say, maybe you're not familiar with the entire book. Understand this. This is very important. Almost the entirety of the book is a volley of dialogue between Job and his friends. That's what the book is. It's this volley of dialogue. Job says something. One of his friends responds to that. Job responds to that response. Another friend comes in and responds to his response. And this is what the book is. Almost the entirety of the book is this dialogue. I want to spend some time today looking at this dialogue. And we're going to look at all of it, but we're going to take little pieces out. And we're going to look at what Job's friends have to say. And the interesting thing about his friends, they have a lot to offer Job, at least from their own perspective. I mean, these men are articulate. They're perceptive. They've experienced life. These are men who have searched out the things of God. They've meditated on these things. 
However, despite all of that, unfortunately, they also possess something else. Unfortunately, they possess a lack of discernment. They've developed, if you will, a blind spot. They've completely misdiagnosed what Job is experiencing. And you're going to see that. They just do not understand what he is actually going through. They believe, actually, as you're going to see, they believe they're helping Job. They're his friends. They've come on the scene. They're helping him from their perspective. They're giving him just and holy, righteous counsel. Counsel which brings life. But the scary thing about this whole thing is, instead of bringing righteousness, just counsel, bringing life, they're actually putting themselves in a deadly position. Very deadly. And I got to tell you, and I've, I went through the book of Job, I don't, I, I don't know how many times, but there is something that when I reflect upon what I just read, when I go through that story, there's something that stings. There's something that hits you that is a warning. It strikes the fear of the living God in you. And what is that? It's understanding the responsibility of friendship. And when we come in as friends, are we truly medicating for truth, for righteousness? Are we comforting according to his will or according to our own? This is a scary thing because after we get done today and you start to see this stuff, it strikes the fear of God into you. You'll appreciate this more and more. We as friends, we have a very unique position of power with each other, right? Very, very unique. Let me just put up an image here. And on here, and you can't see it all so well, but you'll notice there's concentric rings and then you finally get into this target, the, the core, if you will. But all of us, we have the variety of things that influence us and the things on the outer concentric rings influence us less than the things that are closer. So in this example, somebody in this example, education, it's influential, but it's on the outskirts. Whereas music, that's more influential, but even more influential than that is TV. More influential than that is the internet. And now you'll, for, for most of you, you guys could just replace and whatever it is that is really impacting your lives. We could put a bunch of different words up there and on this concentric rings. But this is the reality of how influence works with us. But one thing I can tell you, despite interchanging all these words, one thing I know to be true in your innermost sanctum, those people who have your ear, who have your heart, those are your friends. They are the innermost sanctum, and it works both ways. Think about that position of power that we sit in with friends. Have I always respected that? Absolutely not. Fallen short on that probably many, many of times without respecting that position of power. There's a direct conduit that we have into our friends' hearts. The things that we can speak, the land that other people don't have. You think about that power. Well, with that said, I want to take you to the book of Job. And I want to begin by taking you to chapter 2, because I want you to see that Job's friends are authentic. You know, I used to think before I really got into, you know, in-depth study of the word, I had this perspective that Job's friends are a bunch of criminals. They're pretenders. They were never his friends. That's a lie. That is not true. And for you to truly appreciate the story, 
You need to appreciate this fact that they were authentically, truly his friends. And I will prove this. Let's go to Job chapter 2, verse 11. This is what we read. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, each one came from his own place. And so they were traveling just to go meet with him. The first one is Eliphaz, uh, the Temanite. Then we have Bildad, the Shuite. And then we have Zophar, the Namathite. For they had made an appointment together to come and what? Mourn with him and to comfort him. You want to challenge the authenticity of the friendship? It's put to rest right here. Because this is the very symbol, this is the very call to which we are called to do as believers in Yeshua. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, we're to rejoice with those who rejoice. We are to mourn or weep with those who weep. It's exactly what they're coming to do. What does Paul say? And, and, and he, he takes it even further in 1 Thessalonians, we're to comfort the faint-hearted. This is what they're doing. I mean, as believers, you're going to see these guys in a whole new light today. These friends of Job, these guys are authentic, God-fearing believers, and their actions are beautiful here. They want to come to Job to biblically fulfill their requirement. What's going on? Verse 12, and when they raised their eyes from afar and did not recognize him, they lifted their voices and wept. And each one tore his robe and sprinkled dust on his head toward heaven. They're weeping. Again, authentic. They're moved. Just to see their friend in this state, it tears them apart. I mean, that's just powerful. Moving to verse 13. So they sat down with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his grief was very great. So the bottom line here is that these guys, their their concern for their friend Job, it is real. They care about him. This is the nature of the relationship. And again, I I say, if you don't get this, you're going to miss one of the best lessons you can take away from the book of Job. You need to understand this nature of this friendship. Now, with that backdrop, I want to take you further into the story. And I want to get into some of the statements which uh, these friends of Job make. uh, Statements where we find that they are scripturally dead on. With deadly accuracy. Okay? Let's take a look. Let's go to Job chapter 20, verse 4. And these are the words of Zophar, his friend. Do you not know this of old? And this is, this is Zophar responding to Job. Do you not know this of old? Since man was placed on the earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short. And the joy of the hypocrite is but for a moment, though his haughtiness mounts up to the heavens and his head reaches to the clouds. All you need to do is just read the Tanakh and you will find out this guy knows what he's talking about. It's absolutely true what he is saying. The joy of the hypocrite, it's only for the moment. Isaiah talks about this in in, in Isaiah 37. He actually calls the wicked as grass. You think about grass. It's here one day. It's gone the next. You can go to the Psalms. In Psalm 73, David's mesmerized. He's dumbfounded by the wicked and how they perceive to be. He's looking at them. He goes, they're blessed. They're here. But then he goes on further and he comes to his senses and realizes, yeah, they're only going to be here. They're going to be gone in a second. In a moment, they're going to vanish. And this is what this guy is saying. 
I mean, this is really, really powerful. Because it continues in verse 7. Yet he will perish forever in his own refuse. Those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. Yes, he will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place behold him anymore. Is this true? Is this scripturally accurate? This is scripturally dead on. The wicked will be no more. Read Psalm 37. We will look for them, but they will not be there. They will not be found. You read Malachi 4, and it talks about that the Lord will leave them neither root nor branch. There will be no evidence of the wicked whatsoever. You think about a fire and the fact that a root and branch, when a fire comes down, you can see it devastate an entire forest. And you can go in after, and yeah, now you'll be able to see clear through the fire, but you have evidence of all the trees. But according to Malachi, there will be no evidence. When that fire hits, and the fire of Torah, there will be no evidence of the wicked. So point B in here, Zophar, he is scripturally inclined. He knows deep spiritual truths. He's, as you would say, in the know. Let's go to the next friend, the words of Bildad. Then Bildad the Shuite, the Shuhite answered and said, dominion and fear belong to him, meaning to Hashem, Elohim. And does dominion belong to him? Of course it does. He makes peace in his high places. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does the light, his light not rise? How then can a man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? Think about these deep spiritual truths, these concepts. Is this scriptural? Yes, absolutely. Even David talks about uh, when, when he says, in sin, my mother conceived me. I was brought forth through iniquity. I mean, this is the words of David. It, it gets even more ironic because if you go back, this is chapter 25. You go back to chapter 14, what does Job say? He says the same thing. Job says, who can bring a clean thing? out of an unclean and then he answers no one and so you see these scriptural truths just pouring out of these guys i mean with deadly accuracy right let me take it even a step further and this is really something what i'm going to show you these are the words of eliphaz and this is what he says to job who does great things in unsearchable, marvelous things without number? He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly and those who mourn are lifted to safety. Is that true? Of course it is. But listen to what he says uh, as we continue in 12. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot carry out their plans. Listen to this. He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And the counsel of the cunning comes quickly upon them. This is really something, what he says here, that he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And this is his response to Job. Why is this something to me? The apostle Paul actually quotes this verbatim. And he doesn't just quote it, he quotes it as scripture. Let me show you. Going to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become as a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. And then he says, for it is written. 
He catches the wise in their own craftiness. He's literally quoting Eliphaz verbatim. And you will find that statement nowhere else in scripture. It comes directly from the book of Job from the mouth of Eliphaz. Do you, you getting where we're going with? You get where these guys are coming from? I mean, we look at the friends of Job. We need to have some serious perspective. We need to appreciate that these men revered the Lord. They're men of faith. They're men who are acquainted with the character and nature of our Lord. And they believe the things they're saying. I mean, this is, this is amazing to me. So these guys, as you know, my you know, confirmation bias before of looking, these are not some godless, wretched, you know, scoundrels who are pretenders to be Job just simply to, to pretend to be his friends. It's nothing like that. It's a completely different scenario. And this really hits home with us because we are friends to people. We are in the know, according to scripture, at least most of us would stand, you know, and say, I have a relationship with Yeshua. I study the word of God. I know what I'm talking about. All of us could stand right on that same plateau. The problem comes in with Job's friends when they fail to properly diagnose what Job is going through. And, and, and that's a deceptive trap that they're falling into. They're responding to Job's discourse as he's pleading, he's crying out because he is suffering. It's past the point of what he can endure. And so they're responding to him. But the problem is, is it's without discernment. Scary. I want to take you to chapter 15. And there Eliphaz is going to respond to Job. Job came on the scene and he actually rebukes his friends, basically calls them, you're all a bunch of worthless physicians and uh, that you, you should be silent. That would be your wisdom. And uh, you can't blame Job. Uh, clearly he's, he's on the upper hand on this uh, story. But let me take you to this and let me show you how Eliphaz responds. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered and said, Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? In other words, Eliphaz coming on the scene, modern day interpretation here. Job, you're a gas bag. You're blowing wind here. You're blowing hot air. That's totally nonsense. You don't realize the situation you're in. I see clearly you've turned into a gas bag. Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good? Verse four, yes, you cast off fear and you restrain prayer before God. And listen to this, for your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. Are you the first man who was born? Or were you made before the hills? Moving on to verse eight. Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not in us? Both the gray haired and the aged are among us much older than your father. So here Eliphaz basically outright rebukes Job's rebuke. If you follow that. And he reminds Job that he isn't the only one that's gifted with wisdom. He's in the midst of a plethora of wisdom. His friends, he's in the midst of the aged, even more older than his own father. And so he's, this is his attempt 
to plead with Job, come to your senses, Job. Now, kind of as a side note with this, with this Eliphaz, when you read the book of Job, Eliphaz, and you step back and you really look you go from the front to the end, you realize something that it appears that Eliphaz is the alpha. He is the alpha of the group. And there's evidence within the, the book itself to corroborate this. And uh, we'll actually cover the, the main component at the end of today. But Eliphaz is the first one to speak. Now, that's very significant. And then what I show you today at the end is very significant. Why do I mention this? And what does it have to do with anything? It has everything to do with everything when you think of the power of influence on what it means to other. Eliphaz was the first one to speak up and respond to Job. What do we read after that? Oh, interesting. Then his friends followed. Then his friends followed in. I wonder, had Eliphaz remained silent, the alpha of the group, would they have done that? Maybe not. Probably not. We don't know. It's not included in the book. So we can't say for sure. But one thing I can tell you, human nature, if I'm to judge this based upon history and human nature and how things operate, well, then I would say, yeah, they would have held their peace. Absolutely. Let me show you Bildad's comments. Job 8 verse 1. Then Bildad the Shuite answered and said, how long will you speak these things and the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? You're a gas bag, Job. Here we go again. You're just puffing wind all over the place. Does God subvert judgment? And just think about the things that he's saying. Do we do this? Are we falling into this trap? Because this is true. He says, does God subvert judgment? Of course he doesn't. So the guy's coming out making this powerful, truthful statements. Or does the almighty pervert justice? Not one of us would declare otherwise. Hashem does not pervert justice. If your sons have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgression. Well, that's not exactly words of loving kindness. When you understand what happened in chapter one, his sons were killed. Hasatan went out. The Lord allowed authority. You can debate why later. The Lord allowed Hasatan, the authority to go out and to kill his children. So his sons are dead. And what does he tell him? What is he telling him? This is the words of Bildad. Bildad's just bringing to his attention, hey, look it. Not exactly words of comfort. Uh, I'm going to tell you why your sons died. They're sinners, Job. So the Lord took them out. Let me ask you a question. Is that statement in and of itself, take it out of this context, just take the statement, does the Lord take care of people, if you will, who are sinning. Is this a scriptural concept? And I will tell you, it's one of the most basic fundamental concepts woven throughout the tapestry of scripture. The statement is scripturally sound in and of itself. Let me prove it. Going to Exodus, the Torah. Let's begin in the Torah. And the Lord said to Moshe, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. You will die. This is the fact. We could go many, many other places in Torah. Let me take you to the prophets. The prophets say, but when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness and commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that the wicked man does, shall he live? 
All the righteousness which he has done shall not be remembered because of the unfaithfulness of which he is guilty and the sin which he has committed because of them he shall die. Starting to realize that Bildad, he's really in the know in regard to scripture. Let me just take it one step farther, take you to the New Testament and show you the words of Yeshua. And this is what he says in Luke 13. And there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. In other words, what was going on is Pilate was killing some of these Galileans probably during a festival, probably like during Pesach. As they're having a special celebration and the sacrifices are just pouring into the temple. Well, Pilate went out and he started killing these Galileans. And the Romans were known not to be uh, too wonderful to the Jewish people. Let's be honest. And Yeshua answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Then he continues, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You better learn from what happened there and they're killing because if you don't repent, you're dead. Or are those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Yerushalayim? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So when we look at the words of Bildad, where he says, your sons, if your sons have sinned against him, he will cast them away for their transgression. I mean, that's a scriptural statement. He's just looking at the evidence. He's looking at what happened to them. And he knows all the scriptures. Well, this just makes sense. God has taken them out. They sin. This is of the Lord. The problem with the assessment, obviously, is that he's applying this scriptural concept. He's taking it out of context. And this is what scares me. Because I know most of you are really well acquainted with scripture. How are we approaching, are we approaching our friends and giving them advice? Are we being foolish like Job's friends? This is scary. When I start to look at it and I see how in the know these guys are and they're looking at it, but they're totally devoid of, they don't see spiritually what is going on behind the scenes. No discernment on this deal. And frankly, let's be honest, Job has no idea what is going on. He doesn't. He had no idea that God struck a deal with Hasatan, that it became a challenge because that's what this was about. Scary. Now, Bildad, I want to continue on. He's going to offer Job some more uh, wise counsel. If you would earnestly seek God and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for you and prosper your rightful dwelling place. Interesting. I mean, again, these statements, should we be seeking God? Should we be uh, offering up our supplications to the Almighty? Absolutely. But he just assessed the situation. He just accused Job. Job, these things are happening to you because of your sin. This is what's happening. This is on you, Job. I can't tell you how many stories I could share with you where pastors have come and tell their congregants, their congregants are suffering. They're experiencing something traumatic, whether it be cancer or something else, and they turn around, you don't have faith. (laughs) They point the finger back, you don't have discernment. 
you don't know that, did God come down and tell you, we need to be careful because we are setting up to come in for a fall. This is scary. Let me show you the words of Zophar. We're going to go back to Zophar. Job 11.1, 1, this is what he has to say. Zophar, the Namathite, answered and said, Should not the multitude of the words be answered? And should a man full of talk be vindicated? And he's talking about Job. Oh, you're just full of talk. And Job is pleading his case to the Lord. He is suffering, and here he comes. Here we go again. Zophar calling him a gas bag. You're just a windbag. You're just full of talk, and do you think you're going to be vindicated for this? Should your empty talk make men hold their peace? And when you mock, should no one rebuke you? Verse 4. For you have said, my doctrine is pure, and I am clean in your eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips against you, that he would show you the secrets of wisdom, for they would double your prudence. Know, therefore, that God exacts from you less than your iniquity deserves. <laughs> you think about that statement. God is exacting from him less than his iniquity deserves. Now, again, compartmentalize it. Take it out of this context for a second. Compartmentalize it. Is that a scriptural truth? Yes. Psalm 103 would tell you that the Lord hasn't dealt with us according to our sins. And that could be applied to any man. Absolutely. But now you take that scripture and he's applying it. Zophar's applying it to Job and saying, yeah, despite all, with, with all your horrible sins, Job, this is the price you're paying for it. But you deserve much worse. Now keep in mind, just think about this for a second. Job's body was given full, complete access to Hasatan. Do you think Hasatan did not impose on Job the most diabolical plague that he could con conceive? Because his reputation was on the line. He was going up against God. He needed to make Job fall. Job was experiencing the most inconceivable suffering that anyone's ever known, with the exception of Yeshua. And I could re-go through all of the stuff we just covered. I could re-go through this whole book and show you that Job is a typology of the Messiah on so many ways. So powerful. He's, he's a typology of that. Zophar, again, has taken true scriptural concepts and he's looking at something where the scripture seems to fit perfect. And it's completely fallen short. He's way off on this deal. But he's got his friends. They're all on the same page. What Job was experiencing had nothing to do with this sin at all. It was all about bringing glory to the Most High. So, ultimately, the lesson is this. We need to be very cautious at how we go about influencing others. We need to be cautious about the advice that we give to others. And not just, you know, think about it, it's not just to the person that you're directly speaking to. It's the people that hear so it's just not just affecting that person. And even if you talk directly, privately behind a room and you have this conversation with that person, that person could go tell other 10 other people. And it could affect them, could affect their decisions. We need to learn from this whole debacle and uh, we need to take heed, move in fear. Amen? I think Solomon had, I think, I think he had some wisdom when he says, let your words be few. I think he knew what he was talking about. I mean, this strikes fear into my heart. 
And what is uh, Proverbs? Proverbs, I did put it up here. Proverbs 13, 3. He who guards his mouth preserves his life, but he opens wide his lips shall have destruction. Every one of us yield a great power, this power to influence each other, the power to build up, to strengthen, to bring, literally bring you into the kingdom or to send you to hell. We have this power. We need to be careful how we utilize and wield this power and know that for everything we do, everything that we say, guess what? We're judged for it. And that has brought me to my knees in repentance. Because if I have to have my word stacked up against me, I am not gonna stand on judgment day. This is where repentance comes in. I wanna finish today by showing you a couple things. And the first thing I wanna show you is a response from Job. You know, we didn't really, I didn't spend any time in showing you how Job responds. I just wanna give you a glimpse into it because it's so profound. There's so much wisdom in his words and I want you to see his character. It is stellar. It is, it is incredible. This is how Job responds to Eliphaz. And Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall words of wind, I love this, you're the gas bag, okay? Shall words of wind have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? Moving on, verse four. I also could speak as you do. If your soul were in my soul's place, I could heap up words against you and shake my head at you, but I would strengthen you with my mouth and comfort you, uh, the comfort of my lips would relieve your grief. You think about that. This is his character. Even though he's even a better man than they are, and he is, if they were in his position, they were suffering. Wisdom goes to comfort. That's what he would do. And he would not allow this foolishness to well up inside of him and literally start showering them with scriptures out of context. It's scary. This is the kind of friend that Job is. This is who he is, the kind of friend that we want to have, right? This is the kind of friend we need to be. It goes on to say, 19 verse 21, have pity on me, have pity on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you persecute me as God does and are not satisfied with my flesh? Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and lead forever. I show you this because guess what? They were. Job's petition to the Lord that his words would be inscribed with the pen, that they would be inscribed on a rock, meaning all eternity, they were. We're reading them today thousands of years later and they will go on into the kingdom. Powerful. So how does this story end? Well, in the last chapter, the Lord gets done speaking with Job and then he moves to Eliphaz and listen to what he says. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job or Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, and my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends. Now notice the Lord does not go to Zophar or Bildad. He goes to Eliphaz. And this is getting to the cooperating that Eliphaz is the alpha here. He's the one, Okay. He had an impact here on this whole deal. So the Lord goes to him. 
that the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Tamanite, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Here they're showering Job with scripture. This is it. And the Lord comes on the stream and straightens it all out. You have not spoken what is right. They have not used this sword correctly. They ended up cutting their own bodies up, not using it as an expert, uh, expert swordsman. Continuing on. Now, therefore, take for yourselves seven bulls, seven rams. Go to my servant, Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant, Job, shall pray for you. For I will accept him, lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. You want to talk about the power of influence? Look at what the influence that Job has on his friends for no other reason than him holding fast to his integrity. He held fast to the Lord. And at the end, guess what? These guys are real glad that they got Job as a friend. Think about the power of that influence. Think about had Job not prayed for them. Think about if they didn't go to Job for prayer. What would have happened to them then? They would have died. The wrath of God would have come upon them. Do you see this? Do you see how the effects of a righteous man can give life? The influence? The prayer. What does James say? The prayer of a righteous man availeth much to the point where it's giving life. This is what we're talking about here. Extremely powerful. Not only that, you want to look at the character and influence of Job. We get into the family unit. Job rose in the morning, early in the morning. Do you know what he was doing early in the morning? He was offering sacrifices to God and he was interceding on behalf of his children. Every morning, be worried that maybe one of his sons had sinned. Again, I tell you, the power of influence to make that change. And you might say, well, Daniel, that didn't work out so well. You know, Satan went out and killed his children. Or was it God? Uh, it's interesting. I point this out, that Job begins with seven sons and three daughters. Read the story. At the very end of the story, everything is restored to him. It says he has seven sons and three daughters. In other words, there's a sign there that's telling you he lost nothing. He didn't lose anything. And in the age to come, we're going to see him. It's really, really powerful. We're going to end here for today.